and welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. I'm Steve. And I'm a Trackman. Yes, today we are joined by our friend who goes by the handle I'm a Trackman. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been really looking forward to this episode. Oh, it's it's going to be great. We've been looking forward to it too. Um, and So you've been a friend of the podcast since we've gotten started, but I was wondering, uh, how is it that you got into chip music and the sorts of projects that you get into uh, today? I was growing up. I'm a young guy. I'm only 21 years old. But my family, all the technology that I've got basically is hand-me-downs. Mm-hmm. Even my phone now, I bought from my dad when he upgraded. So when the latest video game system came out, my dad or my uncle bought it, and I got what they had before then. So I grew up with an NES. I grew up with the Game Boy. I grew up with, you know, when the GameCube came out, my dad gave me the, the N64. and The earliest sort of interest I think I had with chip music was me playing Alleyway on the Game Boy. Like, you know, one of those launch titles? Mm -hmm. Like on a trip, we were playing that and I was like, hey, this sounds sounds pretty good. It's not awful. That's like one of my very earliest experiences with it. And then the, the one that really got me into it was playing Super Mario Brothers one time. I wanted to see exactly how many sounds the NES was making at once. And I miscounted because I thought that the two pulse waves were one sound. So I counted them as one. And then I got the triangle wave and the noise. And because I had Duck Hunt on the same cartridge, I heard, you know, the duck quacking samples. So I counted four channels. Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. And then after that, I was like, well, somebody has to be able to make music for this. How do I do it? And that at that point, I found out that NSF files existed. And I was like, okay, cool. I can listen to the music of different games, but how do I make these? And then I found out about Famitracker, and I started playing around with Famitracker in February of 2011. Wow. And that's where this all starts. Now, I started super, like, just knowing nothing in 2011, and now I've got four MSX computers, two Famicoms. Hell yeah, man. Every single expansion chip. <laughs> I'm making a I'm making an expansion for the Game Boy. It's insane. Yeah, I mean that just goes to show it doesn't matter how or when you get into this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, I'm like 10 years older, but we're inviting you onto the podcast because of your expertise and all the, you know, the knowledge you have. Um, I mean, speaking of which, Steve, what is it that we're talking about today? Well, today we are talking about the MSX. Yes. The MSX. And so for full disclosure, I actually sort of largely sat out on the preparation for this episode um, between a vacation and, you know, like a move occupying a good chunk of the, the the time leading up to this episode. This was all pretty much you guys. So I'm sort of along the ride for this uh, episode and you guys are going to educate us on the MSX. So speaking of which, what is the MSX? Well, a lot of people, when they think of MSX, they think of the MSX, like if it's a system like the NES or the Super Nintendo or the Game Boy. But that's not really what it is. It's a standard for a bunch of different computers made by a bunch of different companies. So saying the MSX is kind of like saying the Dell or the IBM, and that doesn't really make much sense in context. Uh, What we're talking about instead is a group of computers that were made to be compatible in software and hardware. And we might take that for granted today, but in the mid-1980s, that was a massive deal. It's basically a group of Z80-based 8-bit computers that use cartridges, but it sometimes also used floppy disks and tapes and other things, but most systems had two cartridge slots for games, RAM, programs, etc., etc. 
And some of them even had three cartridge slots, like the Yamaha CX-5M or the Sony HBF-600 or what's another one? The YIS-805? I don't know. There are a bunch of them. (laughs) Those are off the top of your head, too. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's wild. Uh, So, yeah, we might as well dig into the history here. So let's begin. So, in general, I think it makes sense to talk about how the MSX came to be. A lot of the innovations and sound design changes happen as the computer progresses, so for now, we'll provide a brief overview. So, at the very highest level, I guess we can say that the MSX was kind of a power play by ASCII, that's a company called ASCII, uh, and its founder, Kazuhiku Nishi, uh, in a collaboration with Microsoft to establish a worldwide standard of computing, mostly by targeting Asian markets. So, uh, that's pretty much it, right? Yeah, and it gets a little hairy later, but that's basically the whole story. The idea of having a computer standard mostly stems from the fact that all of the computers on the market at the time in Japan, like the NEC PC 6001 and 8001 series, the Fujitsu FM7 and FM8, and the PC98 too, they all had different and incompatible hardware and different versions of Microsoft Basic. And that meant that no computer, no matter who made it, Even if one company produced two different kinds of computers, they could never possibly run the same software. So logically, it would be a good thing if that gap could be bridged. Uh, The MSX was supposed to be a computer that would basically just make it so that there's one standard, widely accepted way computers quote-unquote worked. Uh, This would allow other manufacturers to join easily as the parts, components, shape, functionality, they're all defined. Like there's a spreadsheet that says this is what it needs. Uh, Something that was done on a company-by-company basis previously. MSX stands for the operating system on which they all work. Now, that's very interesting because what it's supposed to do is to give these machines what's called software compatibility. Or if you would like that in English, it comes down to this. It means that I should be able to whip the cartridge out of this one, swap it with the cartridge that's in this one, plug it in properly. Here we go. Swap that one into there. And the programs will run without any problem on the other machine. And you could do that with all the MSX machines in the range, which, as you can imagine, is a significant commercial threat indeed to European and United States computer manufacturers. So how did uh, Microsoft get involved in all this? Microsoft recognized Nishi's talent and formally made a partnership in 1979 to form ASCII Microsoft. It was only a matter of time before Nishi would pitch the development of a new ideal standard, and Nishi knew well enough about this gap. He also worked to develop the PC-8001 and the Kyotronic 85, which was the first notebook-style computer. Actually, as an aside, the Kyotronic 85 actually made it here in the States as the TRS-80 Model 100, and was available through Radio Shack under the Tandy label. It's a cool little computer, had a liquid crystal display built in, uh, rubber buttons. It was pretty popular, actually. So, Nishi saw the opportunity to create a standard based on the American Spectre Video SVI-328, which was a Z80-based 8-bit computer that used cartridges with optional tape-based and eventually disc-based peripherals. It was released in the summer of 1983 for U.S. audiences, and the computer is, for the most part, exactly identical to the first generation of MSX computers. It sports a 3.5 MHz Z80, 
same graphics resolution, same sound chip, uh, the AY38910, which we'll talk about later, but it's not exactly compatible with the MSX. The reason it's not compatible with the MSX is because even though all the parts are the same, they're wired together a little differently, and it doesn't actually include the MSX BIOS. So if you wanted to play an MSX game on the Spectre video, you'd have to rewrite the game so it knows where the hardware is, and then you'd have to load the MSX BIOS through a floppy disk and run the game. <laughs> that sounds absolutely ridiculous. Like, that's t- totally much. I mean, like, it's kind of <laughs> crazy, but it, it, it sounds like it's a lot more effort than it's worth. <laughs> it, it does work, though, and you can do it, and people have done it. Uh, another thing is people take Spectre video games and port them over to the MSX. Oh, I didn't even realize SpectreVision actually had its own game library. Yeah, that's something I'm not familiar with at all. Yeah, Interesting. So kind of getting back to this. So obviously, bringing up all these points, there's a reason or a benefit to designing a computer with the hardware they chose. Most of these parts were readily available and standardized already, which meant other companies could easily join and start producing their own computers under the standard. This is something Nishi had also targeted when he worked on the PC-8001, uh, simplicity of design and use of common parts. So being based on the Spectra video, sort of looking at the timeline here, uh, it makes sense that the first MSXs were released that fall, the fall of 1983, for Japanese audiences. But you guys were saying it's hard to put a finger on which was like the very first company to get one on the shelves, right? Because they're all sort of developed around the same time. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's, it's widely believed that the first MSX available was Mitsubishi's ML8000 on October 21st, 1983, followed by Sanyo's uh, MPC-10. Uh, there are other uh, models by Sony, National, Panasonic, etc., 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 and they all followed closely uh, after. The real reason for this is that there was no scheduled kind of rollout of these things. It was kind of a race to see who could put them on the shelves first. And it wasn't kind of a like a, a, since it is a standard as opposed to one company doing this, it's basically as soon as someone got it, they put it on the shelf as opposed to let's all roll it out at the same time. No, it was a race to put it out there. Um, and in other, in other cases too, it was just the way that it was shipped. It wasn't necessarily shipped to, you know, some places got it the 21st, some places got the 23rd. So uh, like, I guess the whole point of that is it wasn't a cohesive rollout, which is kind of interesting when something's being debuted. Right. Yeah, it's not like October 25th, 1983 is MSX day or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. But it really does show like how versatile the standard is. There were a bunch of different companies producing compatible machines at exactly the same time, or mostly exactly the same time, and then just releasing them when they could. Yeah, it's really quite remarkable just how many companies were on board. We've got some well-known electronic names here. Here's one by Canon. There's a JVC. This is a Mitsubishi. This is a Sanyo. There's a Sony. Over there is a Toshiba. And this one is from Hitachi. They are part of a group of 17 different machines from 17 manufacturers, where although the machines themselves look rather different one from another, they all have one thing in common, three letters, M-S-X. So something I was wondering about, isn't there some debate about the initials of MSX? Like, does the M actually stand for Microsoft or something else? Kind of. Uh, Microsoft wouldn't want you to think that anymore. (laughs) That's weird. (laughs) So... So like we said, MSX was the sort of brainchild of ASCII and Microsoft. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the, the main thing that MSX could stand for is what it runs, an extended version of Microsoft Basic 
or Microsoft Extended Basic. So that's what the MS stands for. It's, it's the MS for Microsoft and the Extended. Huh. So, that, I mean, that sounds pretty clear cut to me, but the fact that there's sort of like uh, them shying out on that and not wanting that to be their legacy, that that's kind of strange. Yeah, it's well, there's a story we're going to tell later. Yeah, we'll clear that up. We'll clear that up a little bit later. Cool. Yeah, because that, that's something I always wondered about. So that's kind of weird. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing that. But another thing that it could stand for is machines with software exchangeability, which is entirely true. Every single MSX machine is different from a Casio PV7 to a Panasonic Turbo R. They're all different inside, but a Turbo R can run every single piece of MSX software, regardless of whether or not it was released in 1990 or in 1983. Oh, well, there you go then. So there is some plausible deniability that it doesn't stand for Microsoft. So, okay, that's interesting. It's interesting too. Like uh, originally, you know, there's also talk about in uh, interviews with Nishi that they, you know, they wanted to name it NSX with the letter N, uh, and obviously, uh, uh, Trackman, what was the N, what was it when it was in the NSX format? It was Nishi Standard Exchangeability or something like that. I have no idea. I honestly have no clue what it could have been. There's there's one where he wanted to use Nishi, but he couldn't do that because of the Honda NSX, the car. <laughs> it was already trademarked. Ah. So he couldn't do that. <laughs> he was blocked by the car. Which is funny because Microsoft actually makes a motorcycle called the MSX. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's super popular in the Philippines. Oh, wow. So if the MSX was such a good idea at the time, uh, you know, offering compatibility that other computers didn't, why aren't we all using MSX computers today? That's something I ask myself every day of my life. <laughs> well, there's a couple of reasons why the MSX failed to take hold. Um, for one, we had, even though he mentioned that he was a little afraid of it, uh, Drac Trammell's Commodore's computers uh, creating a massive rate to the bottom of computer pricing. Um, with Commodore leading the way in Europe and the US, the MSX wasn't really to take hold in these key markets. And actually really didn't even try. Nishi and Microsoft had failed to realize the potential of microcomputing in Europe like 100% completely. The European market already contained the ZX Spectrum and the Commodore 64. And by the time the MSX arrived, they were already well established and dominant in those markets. And yeah, even though, you know, MSX didn't really take hold in the US, Jack Tremail developed the Commodore Plus 4, which was created directly to compete with MSX. (laughs) But the only computers he was really competing against were the SVI, the Spectra Video computers, the SVI 728 and 738, which actually were MSX compatible, and then the Yamaha CX-5M. And even then, the CX-5M was billed as a music creation computer. It was like, if you look at the box, it says Yamaha Music Computer, and it's got a tiny MSX logo that you can see. And for the longest time, really, nobody even thought that the Yamaha computers were, you know, actually MSXs. Whoa, that's super weird. Um, And this is uh, something that I saw in the notes here is making me crack up earlier um, because this is totally absurd. There was some kind of dinosaur related fiasco between Bill Gates (laughs) and uh, Kazuhiko Nishi, right? Okay, so... 1984 rolls around and Nishi is super excited that MSX has sold over a million units. And he decides to hold an event called MSX Dinosaur Land. It was a month and a half long event starting on December 1st of 1985 and featured an 18 meter tall, 30 meter long dinosaur created by the company that made the models for the Godzilla movies. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, every two hours... 
the dinosaur would let out a huge roar, obviously generated by MSX computers. <laughs> According to MSX.org, about 230,000 people attended this event. Wow. And the dinosaur wasn't the only attraction. It was basically like a big trade show. And, you know, there, there were vendors. There were various kinds of MSX machines to try out. You could, you know, walk in and see a, a Sony machine. You could play a Konami game, walk over, buy a, a Sanyo tape drive for yours. Who knows? The problem was, though, the cost. It was really expensive. You know, uh, building a dinosaur isn't cheap. <laughs> so, so the dinosaur by itself cost about $750,000 to make in 1985 money. Wow. <laughs> It's, it's rumored that the show itself cost about a million dollars again in 1985 money, which is astronomical now. That'd be like two or three million. Yeah. Yeah, easily. Eventually, uh, Bill Gates found out about this and he wasn't happy. <laughs> <laughs> especially, especially since by 1985, MSX was at, at this point really considered a failure in the eyes of Microsoft. It didn't take off, and it, it was moderately successful in Japan, but it definitely, in the two years that it was out, did not take over the world. It was not popular in the West at all. And this was just one of the many tense issues that happened between Gates and Nishi. You know, so this was ultimately served as, and a lot of people point to this, as the straw that broke the camel's back. Microsoft pulled their partnership with Nishi and ASCII in 1986, leaving him to drive the sales of the MSX by himself. With the funding gone, Nishi found himself in almost $500,000 of debt to Microsoft, which obviously wasn't really a good thing. <laughs> so it, it's all the dinosaur's fault. It's that damn dinosaur. The other thing is that compared to the Commodore 64, PC-88, and its other competitors, which had become well-established by 1983, it was slow. I mean, I love them, but really, they are slow computers. Nearly any port of a game for the MSX played worse and slower than the original, and a lot of it had to do with scrolling and accessing video memory. Ultimately, it's, it's kind of a similar issue that the Sega Saturn had. The Sony PlayStation, in most cases, uh, was any game for the Sony PlayStation played better than the Sega Saturn version. That's because the Sega Saturn uh, basically had a dual processor setup. Uh, it's kind of like it had two processors. And the way to make the Sega Saturn handle things was to send data to each of these processors, making it faster than the PlayStation. But if you wrote something for the Sony PlayStation and wanted to port it to the Sega Saturn, that would mean you'd have to rewrite the entire game to give instructions across these two processors. Most people just rewrote the games to go across one processor, meaning that every single game for Saturn that didn't take advantage of both processors is inferior. Almost any first-party Sega game used it, every single other game. I can think of like Symphony of the Night. The loading time in Symphony of the Night for the Sega Saturn is absolutely insane. I can't even uh, tell you. That's interesting. It didn't, it didn't have to be that bad if it actually took advantage of what the Sega Saturn actually had. Exactly. That's 100% true. And I guess, so you see the same thing with the MSX. I didn't realize that. Yeah, yep. Mm -hmm. But the MSX standard continued until 1993. So, you know, if it was choking a bit by 1986, how did it survive uh, another six years? Adaptation. That's the easiest way to put it. Faster models, the MSX2 in 1985, uh, MSX2 Plus in 1988, and Turbo R in 1990 were all newer standards that were introduced. The problem is that the loss of good faith from the initial failure of the standard really condensed the pool of manufacturers for the computers. About 40 different companies made MSX-1 standard computers. 
when you get to 1985, only about half of them made MSX2 models. And in 1988, with the MSX2 Plus standard, only Sanyo, Panasonic, and Sony kept going. Ooh, wow. By the time... Yeah. By the time Turbo R hit in 1990, only Panasonic was making MSX computers for the most part. You can see how it died out. And if you think about the the, the landscape of uh, you know Japanese PC gaming at that time, the X6800 is on the market, the FM Towns is on the market, and so there's all the, these big, powerful, shiny 16-bit computers. The MSX standard really only had a window between 1983 and 1986 with Microsoft support to take hold. It basically failed. Um, the Turbo R made you know an attempt to compete with these. Um, I mean, it had a, 16, a custom 16-bit processor in it uh, made by ASCII, the R800. But again, by that time, it's you know there was no one really supporting the standard, and everyone was kind of moving on and accepting, I guess, you know, the PC98, and then eventually Western machines. That's basically what took it over. Too too little, too late. Yeah. There was even talk of having an MSX3 standard later on, which would have had graphics similar to the 68000 and slightly surpassing the Super Nintendo. But it was pulled due to lack of interest in Panasonic's investment in the 3DO, and there were parts that were being manufactured that didn't make it out in time, and it died in the water, basically. I, I wonder, you know, I never thought about this, but like, I wonder how much of the 3DO really is the successor to the MSX. I don't, I've, I've got no clue i mean that's that. something that's something we should look into at some point because right. it's just interesting because that's panasonic's next move right after the uh, the turbo r like literally they were developing it right probably at the end of turbo r's life i wonder if there's anything in common that would be really interesting yeah we should we should uh, look into that um so what's the legacy of the msx and you know after everything's said and done it's fascinating. I mean, the system itself is popular in USSR, Cuba, Kuwait, which is really cool. Actually, uh, Mohammed from Brave Wave wrote a fantastic article about the Kuwaiti 80s, uh, you know, and the, the kind of renaissance of MSX that occurred. Uh, I'll link it here. It's really great. It's definitely worth reading. Um, so while it was mostly considered a failure, I guess it's only a failure because that the, the computers themselves didn't really become the standard or worldwide accepted standard that swept the globe. You know what I mean? Right. But in terms of 8-bit computers, it's up there in sales, which is interesting. The Commodore 64, during its entire lifetime, internationally moved about 17 million units. Um, and, you know, the really popular and famous Apple II series moved about 6 million by comparison, the MSX standard, you know, that big net of all their systems, moved about 9 million systems in Japan alone. So that means that in Japan alone, the MSX standard outsold the Apple II series. Um, to put that in the further context, the NEC PC98 sold about 19 million units during its life. So, you know, if they, they sold 9 million, I mean, for every one uh, MSX sold, there were two PC98s. That's, you wouldn't think of it that way because the PC98 is so legendary. Um, I think and I think that, the Famicom. Oh, sorry, I think the Famicom on its own also sold 11 million units. So it, it's not even that that much popular than the MSX. Yeah, you know, and I think that ASCII and Nishi should be really proud of their accomplishment. And you know, its legacy is is more robust than they probably even really think it was. You know what I mean? And there's sort of a living legacy today, right? Because like just as we're preparing for this episode, like a bunch of new tools and software dropped, right? Oh, yeah. Um, we actually used a couple of them in the episode. Uh, somebody made an IMF player for the MSX, which means you can play uh, recorded files from DOS PC music on the MSX. 
Nice. So awesome. you can play OPL3 music recorded from Doom or Wolfenstein on your MSX. That's so cool. Someone I need is, one of those. <laughs> someone is developing a Wi-Fi cartridge. What? That's awesome. Yeah. You can plug it in. It's got, like, I'll send you the pictures later. It's just a normal MSX cartridge, and it's got, like, a little Wi-Fi antenna module sticking up right out of the cart. <laughs> that's so I cool. I mean, that's the thing, like, when you have a computer that was built to standard, that was built on a Z80 processor, that does have a bunch of things that you can pull off the shelf, you have the ability to create new things for it. So the, the unintended consequence, or perhaps the intended consequence is in the long term, is everything that's in there is a standard part that is well-documented that everyone understands. So you can make things talk to it because everyone knows how to make something that talks to a Z80 processor. Um, every Like the AY in there is a very common sound chip that a lot of different programs write music for. So, you know, th- that standard legacy actually really aids people in the home development, uh, you know, communities these days. Yeah, people just recently, like very recently, a new game was released for the MSX with a soundtrack by Alberto Jose Gonzalez. Which is, yeah, the soundtrack's fantastic, by the way. (laughs) There are people making OPNA cartridges, people developing, you know, new extensions for hardware, people cloning hardware that already existed that you can't get anymore there's you know there there are people who are making their own msx computers that are licensed by the msx licensing corporation nishi's still around nishi still gets phone calls about you know companies saying hey is it okay if we do this we saw that it was like affiliated with msx a long time ago is it okay if we still continue with it it, like he still signs papers he still gives out licenses for msx stuff people are still making the computers and people are still making stuff for it wow that's awesome so it's total i guess i hope that this whole long conversation here kind of sets the stage uh but you know this is a show about audio uh and we have a lot of great examples here uh of msx audio there's an incredibly diverse set of sounds and I, I'd say that there's some really, really fantastic soundtracks that probably a lot of people haven't heard out there. So we should probably move on to the sound here. Yeah. So first, we're going to talk about what's sort of considered to be the core or perhaps uh, base MSX sound chip, uh, followed by the newer sound chips and sound expansions. And we'll go through all of them in chronological order. Yes. So the basic sound chip, the sound chip that's part of the MSX original standard 1983, is the AY38910. So starting with the AY38910, sometimes simply called AY, this wasn't only found in the MSX. Yep, it's honestly probably my favorite sound chip of all time, just because of how versatile of a little chip it is. It's featured in many, many computers and arcade games from the early 80s. And again, it was chosen mostly because it was widely available and there was a decent knowledge base of how to write for it. It and chips like it are more generally referred to as PSG, which stands for Programmable Sound Generator. And something I was wondering about, you know, I know other systems like the ZX Spectrum also had the AY or PSG sound chip, 
uh, and to my understanding, it's the same basic sound. Was it really the exact same chip, like, and it has the exact same sound across all those systems? Uh, yeah, completely, 100%. Totally okay, cool. identical. Super popular chip. The most popular chip of that time, really. Like, if you name a computer, it probably had it. MSX, ZX Spectrum, Apple II, Atari ST. Gyrus had five of them inside of it. <laughs> you, can, wow. you can play mu- MSX music on a ZX Spectrum. You can play ZX Spectrum music on an Apple II. You can play Apple II music on an MSX. It's it's just totally, completely interchangeable. And something you guys haven't done an episode on yet, uh, the Famicom expansion chip, Sunsoft 5B, mm-hmm. in gimmick, is exactly the same chip. All the registers are in the same place. All the features are the same. There's nothing cut down between any of these computers. Their base audio capabilities are just exactly the same. Oh, wow. So uh, what kind of sounds could it make? Well, it had three independent sound channels, one shared noise generator and one shared envelope generator. And these modes can be mixed together in any combination, in any order, at any volume, really. Yeah, I think you whipped up an audio demonstration of these modes, right? Yep, so we'll just go through all of them right now. So this is just the tone by itself. This is what the noise sounds like. This is what it sounds like when tone and noise are turned on at the same time in the same channel. Here's the envelope generator. Here's the envelope and tone. Here's the envelope with the noise. And here's all three of them combined. So we were talking about this a bit uh, off podcast before, but you said there's some tricks with the sound that Konami did with their drums. Uh, And this can be like a good way to demonstrate how those sounds can be manipulated, right? Uh, Yeah. uh, Konami was like one of the most, you know, prolific companies that did stuff with this. Most other companies just used like the sort of base uh, capabilities of the chip, just used three square waves. I don't really think the envelope generator was ever used except for like the, the title screen on one game. Mm-hmm. And they just used, you know, noise straight up just to play decaying noise or for sound effects. But I have four different examples of little tricks that Konami did with their drums. Uh, with the first example here, which is from Gradius 3, a really late MSX1 title, it does this thing where the first frame of, of the drum... All it does is actually play noise, but the first frame of the drum is muted. So none of the none of the modes are enabled, but it plays it at full volume. So it sounds like a pop, and then after the pop, you get a noise decay. In example two, they use the envelope generator to get the tone to to decay really quickly because obviously you know they can on the msx they're they're stuck at 50 or 60 hertz the envelope generator isn't bound to that because it's you can set the rate completely independently they use it to decay faster than the msx can would technically be able to update the volume uh it's from snatcher on the msx2 and it's one of the cooler tricks that they start really getting into what they can do with the psg In example three, they use the envelope generator, and for the first couple of frames of the drum, they turn on the envelope generator and noise at the same time. 
the user wave shape, which is a logarithmic triangle. So if you were to look at it, it would look like a U. It wouldn't be straight lines. Mm -hmm. And they turn on the tone generator at the same time because when the square is on, it's letting sound pass through. But when the square goes down, it actually turns sound off completely. So what they do is they chose a frequency that when the ep the envelope is at its peak, it actually turns the sound off. So they get more than one peak in two frames, and then they decay with noise and it makes it sound like someone's clapping. So they use that as part of the percussion. So that one was from Space Mambo, which was released for the MSX-1 and the MSX-2, and you can see that they're getting really advanced here. In example four, they start combining all of the modes, like they use the envelope generator to decay a really high-pitched tone at the beginning of some of the drums to give it like a little metallic hit. And then as the drums decay, they use tone and noise enabled at the same time to make it sound really metallic, like somebody's hitting a cymbal or something. It's really cool how, like, over the course of the games progressing, you can hear how they're taking advantage of more features of just this super basic chip to get it to do what they want to, to want it to do. According to your notes here, it would also appear that the PSG was mono mostly, but could do stereo? Yeah. So original MSX models, uh, original MSX1 models, and some MSX2 models, uh, like uh, some of the Yamaha ones, because you know Yamaha wants to use some of their own hardware, uh, they use the discrete chip. So the actual 40-pin AY or YM chip. And it has three sound output pins for each channel or rather has one for each channel. And most of the time, they're all just wired together with resistors and then mixed together as one mono sound output. But because there's three separate output pins, you could really connect them in any way you want. So you could have channels one and two going to the left and then three to the right, or you could have a couple in the center and then one either left or right, or you could really do whatever you want. When they got to the MSX2, they integrated the sound chip into the main sort of memory controller and mapper and the real-time clock chip that they had, which is called MSX Engine. And it actually puts the sound out on two pins. On most models, once again, they're wired together and go to a mono sound output on the audio mixing board. But in a couple of models, like the Casio Pasopia, I think, and I think there's one called the MX-10, which uses it. That might be wrong. Uh, they're wired to separate sound outputs in stereo, and it actually has a switch on the back, so you can switch between stereo and mono. So the sound chip was capable of stereo, it's just that it wasn't configured that way very often. Yeah, not on the MSX, but on a lot of games on the ZX Spectrum are in stereo. Uh, I think the hardware itself is wired in stereo. Gotcha. And they use, they use ABC stereo, which is channels 1 and 2, which are A and B, on the left, and then 2 and 3 on the right. Uh, so by listening uh, uh, to a Spectrum soundtrack, you can hear the stereo being used really commonly. Oh, and you uh, picked out a track that demonstrates the stereo sound? Yeah, it's actually from a ZX Spectrum game uh, from 2003 called Fire and Ice. It's a port of the NES Fire and Ice game. And oh, it's a wow. really oh, good awesome. port. It's, it's, it's super fun. And it's got a really good soundtrack. 
this is the ending theme to the game called uh, Air Beam by DJ Denson. Just as a quick aside, I do remember hearing that there was a port of Fire and Ice. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to check that out now because Fire and Ice is my favorite puzzle game on the NES. So there's absolutely no reason I shouldn't be checking out the MSX uh, version. So that sounds awesome. Oh, yeah, it's totally it's like as accurate as you can get it with, you know, the screen resolution difference. It's it's the same game, but the That's soundtrack great. is just much better. It doesn't have that annoying sort of buzzy DPCM wave where the triangle is always out of tune, it infuriates me listening yeah, to the soundtrack the, for that game. The NES soundtrack to Fire Nice is very farty sounding. I think it's the best way to put it. Like the, yeah, There's something very... I really hate I, it. I mean, I, like I kind of like it, but it's, it is bad sounding at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> one thing I was doing a couple of years ago, and I should actually get back on it, is doing an NES version of the of the Spectrum soundtrack. And it sounds so good on the, on the NES. Oh, that would be cool to see. So just, you know, while we're talking about the PSG here, this should not be confused with something we talked about in a previous episode, the SN76489, which is a variant PSG found in the Sega Master System, Game Gear, and Sega Genesis. The SN76489 was the AY's competitor and was used during the same time frame. Uh, the SN had one more channel by comparison, but lacked the AY's range in the lows, one entire octave actually. So that would mean the chip is basically missing an entire octave of bass notes, which are kind of important when you make music. Yeah. The result is that you can't get that deeper bass out of the PS out of the uh, SN76489, but you can out of the AY. So just kind of an interesting thing here. We prepared examples showing the ranges, uh, you know, for the from top to bottom on both, just to kind of get an idea to show you just how much that bottom range on the AY helps. So first you'll hear a downward pitch bend on the SN, followed by a downward pitch bend on the AY.
So this is something you really notice when comparing MSX and ZX Spectrum music to the Sega Master Systems library. Because even though it's the same general sound set, you get deeper sounds on these computers. And I mean, there were some tricks to get like a deeper bass out of the Master System, but they're kind of rare. It's yeah. not commonplace. Like the overall expectation is that the Master System just sounds Yeah, it always thinner. sounds tinny to me. Like I love the, the sound of it and yeah. I like that in the game here, but it, it never, it always sounds like everything is just like chipmunkized, if you will. Like it's like, a, like you know, like, it's yeah. on helium. It's oh, you can never get that real big crunch unless you use a couple tricks. So, so one thing to note is that the AY chip in these later models of the MSX is replaced with a slightly different variant, a, a different chip called the YM twenty one forty nine. What are the differences here? Yeah, no, there really aren't any at all. Like a hundred percent, they're completely, totally compatible. The only real difference is that the YM21 has a clock divider pin, and if you run voltage to that pin, it runs at half the speed. So in MSX1 models, you had to run the sound chip at 1.79 MHz instead of the 3.5 that the MSX itself is running at. And in MSX2 and up, because it's integrated into the main chip, they just stuck the divider on, fed it the full clock, and it divides it in half automatically. Second, uh, the envelope generator. On the AY, it's only 15 steps, and on the YM, it's 32, but those 32 steps are only available when the envelope generator is turned on. So you don't have 32 steps of volume in normal use, and because it has twice as many steps, the envelope goes by twice as fast to compensate. It's a really minor difference, but it sounds exactly the same. Gotcha. So but the, does that result like in even like a minor difference in the output in the end? It does. Uh, the thing about the AY is that it was basically drawn by hand, the die on the chip. So there are little mistakes in the in the die. Mm-hmm. So the YM is basically done right. As much as I hate to admit it, because I actually like the envelope shape of the AY more, it sounds dirtier. And again, the reason for that is probably private, that we can't publicly share at the moment. But the end result is, yeah, like I said, it was it was hand-drawn, it was more crudely designed. Because of that, the volume steps in the AY aren't as evenly spaced as they should be, so this creates bigger volume leaps around them. So, the volume change from 8 to 9 is a much bigger change than from 7 to 8. So this unevenness makes it dirtier, which I like, I prefer it. The YM2149 was more carefully computer-designed, and all the volume steps are consistent decibels in size it's it's three decibels for every single volume step and when the envelope generator is turned on it's one and a half and so we have an example here of the envelopes being compared across both chips yeah in each example the first sound you hear is the ay chip with the dirtier sound and then the second sound you hear is the ym with the cleaner sound so here's example one here's example two where it's probably the easiest to hear the difference So here's example three. So you might not have heard much of a difference there, but the first one, like I said, was the AY. And in this next example, you can hear the dirty and clean sound joined together without an empty pause between them. You'll hear a very obvious change in the undertones. Uh, It's a lot more pronounced when the AY plays it, and then it suddenly gets a little quieter when the YM jumps in. 
So let's take a listen to a few tunes from MSX games here uh, using the AY chip or the PSG. Trackman, being that you are a Trackman, you've selected some good examples here, it would appear. Yep. Here's a couple of examples of my favorites from the PSG library of the MSX. First up on my list is Force by HAL Labs, oddly enough. Published to MSX by Sony, it's really weird to see like all these names on the one screen. It's like it's it's got a Sony copyright, a HAL Labs copyright, and then another one. It's it's super strange to see all these names in like one <laughs> list. Next game on Trackman's list is Penguin Adventure by Zamina. This is a really, really good game, by the way. And like, you know, to, you think of like older 8-bit games that are kind of like, I, I don't know, like not super, like not super interesting or challenging or you know, just kind of very one note, you know, that's kind of my opinion of like really early 8-bit games. But this is a very fun game with a lot to do and the music is really great. The soundtrack is fairly long too. The Japanese version of uh, composers were Kenichi Matsubara and Yoshinori Sasaki. Oh, isn't uh, Kenichi Matsubara the composer for Castlevania Simon's Quest, right? Yep, actually, yeah. And Sasaki-san worked on uh, Akumachu Densetsu. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of like Castlevania guys doing stuff earlier here. Um, <clears throat> so here's the first few tracks from uh, Penguin Adventure. Next on my list is Metal Gear. You notice a lot of, you know, Konami heritage here, don't you? Yep. Konami definitely wrote some of the best music for the MSX. Yeah, I would definitely agree. It's also worth noting that Metal Gear was made for MSX2 before it was released for the Famicom. Um, so the, the Famicom version of Metal Gear is actually a port of the MSX2 version. Yeah, and one thing I noticed is that some of the tracks between the two are the same. Uh, unfortunately, the MSX version is missing the jungle theme. That area and song were added to the NES game. You know, that was new content in the NES version. 
Uh, but the ending theme is the same in both, for example. So let's take a listen to the MSX PSG version, uh, followed by the NES's 2A03 versions uh, back to back. times have you heard the port of something for another system in like 1985 or 1986 and it wasn't very good you know so I, I think it's just interesting to think about the fact that konami had the ability or, or the strength or the power in terms of programming and resources to actually make two good sounding versions of one track for two different systems on two different chips yeah it's something that we talk we've brought up multiple times before in the podcast but konami mm-hmm. you know gave a shit I think it's really what it came yeah. down to. Um, yeah. It's they, another mm-hmm. really interesting thing about the Metal Gear example is that it actually, in a way, kind of sounds better on the MSX. I agree. Yeah. Like honestly, it's a lot. Obviously, it's a lot more limited on the uh, on the MSX, but that's what it was written for first. That's what it was written to take advantage of, and then they brought it over to the and it's like they brought it to the NES and they were like, we have too much space. We have to fill it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> It's true, though. I mean, how many times have you heard a soundtrack that has more channels and it's not necessarily better than the original, you know? See, I've always been more partial to the NES soundtrack just because I love the jungle theme so much. I mean, it's such a good NES theme. But, like, when you compare those two tracks against each other, just there's a certain rawness to the MSX version. It sounds more alive, I think. Um, And and there's just something about that 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 I like more, so. Moving on, uh, another game I have on the list is Greatest Driver by TNESoft. Here's just the just the title theme, which I think makes a really good example of what you can just do with basic PSG uh, capabilities.
So yeah, that's another that's another really good example of a company that gave a shit, which was T and Esoft. They they did a lot of honestly very experimental things, shall we say, with sound. I mean, they also wrote stuff for like the X68K. Um, you know, they they're they're definitely and especially on the MSX, I'd say they're like in the upper tier of you know producers for of music for you know Japanese computers. The composers actually were uh, Kazunori Hasegawa and Shigeru Tomita. Hasegawa worked on on Deadline, which was for the X68K, um, you know, which I kind of previously mentioned. And Tomita is the composer for the Ladox series, which just happens to be our next example. Yeah, so this is great. This is uh, I was familiar with like the OPLL version of the soundtrack a long time ago, but I, I just discovered the PSG version when you guys showed it to me for the episode here. So we're gonna listen to uh, Ladox Two PSG version of. Uh, the main theme, I think it's called Last Attack. And before I forget, it would it would be criminal to not point out the really cool PCM sample that Laydock 2 has at the beginning. It's just pumped straight through the PSG. It's one bit PCM, so it's just on and off. If you were to look at the wave, it would look like noise, but it actually sounds really good for just being one bit. This is Stormy Gunner. We have broken through our enemy's defense zone. Now we will start a counterattack. This is our last attack. This is our last attack. <laughs> That's great. Even, <laughs> even through the shitty voice compression, you can still tell exactly what this says at one bit. It's remarkable. We talked about that a little bit in our uh, to plug our past episode, the one with the high quality sample playback on the NES, where uh, some of the zam- samples are so terrible in quality. It's just to me, it's kind of magic that you can still make out what's being said. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy that you can, we can kind of decipher it. It just shows like the science behind it. But again, yeah, we, we talk about that big in that episode. So check that episode out if you want to know more about that. Um, so I guess kind of, you know, wrapping up this section, there's tons and tons of PSG examples we could choose from. So if we missed any good ones here, comment them and show us on SoundCloud. I'd love to hear more. It's something that I feel like I haven't explored as much. 
in, in terms of things that I think we weren't able to get to that I really enjoy, I like all the yeast PSG stuff is really good. Of course it's good, you know, <laughs> but that's definitely worth checking out if you're into it. So next up, we'll be talking about the SFG from 1983. It's sort of, I mean, we're going to see a brief trend here of sound expansions that were kind of not really used. Yeah. So the next sort of addition to the soundscape of the MSX is actually one of my favorite chips. It's just too bad it was never used, really, as Patrick just said. It's hard to believe, but even the MSX in 1983 had a module that allowed it to use the OPM or YM2151, but it's real. Yeah, so this like this kind of blows my mind because we're talking about what's basically the same OPM that was used in arcade consoles, right? So this is four operator FM synthesis with a whole bunch of sound channels in the early 80s on a home computer. So like this is a bunch of years still before the Sega Genesis makes four operator FM synthesis common, you know, common in home gaming, I should say. Yeah. It was released in a module cartridge known as the SFG-01 synthesizer module, and it was included with the Yamaha CX-5 and CX-5F in Japan. And so we got that here as the Yamaha CX-5M, as you mentioned before, uh, the only quote-unquote MSX released in the U.S. Exactly. It's, It's interesting, too, because even though MSX wasn't successful in the United States, we still got an expansion chip for it. And it does... Everything that the OPM does, as mentioned in your episode on the X68000. It's eight channels of four operator FM synthesis. Basically, the Yamaha CX5 series allowed you to use the SFG and the MSX to define patches and play off a special proprietary keyboard designed for the computer. It was also compatible with the DX line of synthesizers, which makes sense because the DX21, DX27, and DX100 all had OPM chips. Uh, The CX-5 series also had carts for the DX-7 that you could plug in and communicate through MIDI with the DX-7 to program patches for it. So you didn't have to use that stupid little slider. Oh, that slider, man, is like, you know, anyone who like thinks that they, oh, let's just pick up the DX-7, that slider is like (laughs) the worst thing ever. (laughs) So this must have been a really handy music making tool. Uh, to own at that time, I imagine. Yeah, that sounds um, awesome. And e- making it even better, I mean, yeah, exactly. Making it even better, the SFG05 was produced, which allowed the use of any keyboard, not just a proprietary one. There was a standalone Model 2 uh, produced that was just known as the Yamaha FB01. So while no actual game music was made that used the attachment, we're fairly sure it was used for some commercial purposes. But I mean, not even the Yamaha software that came with the CX5 models had example songs. We're working on changing that now, aren't we? So Trackman discovered something really cool about the SFG modules that he's managed to help me replicate on my system. So Japanese MSX systems use 50 pins for the cartridge slots. The module connector used 60 pins, likely for soft locking. What's really funny is that if you use a simple converter, 10 of the pins on the US modules are not used, like at all. So you can just create a simple board that connects the SFG-01 or SFG-05 to any Japanese MSX computer without any modification whatsoever. Yeah, it's really silly. Like the idea of extending a board and not actually putting any pins there is such a hilarious, hilarious like 80s piracy region protection, like a cartridge slot being different that, you know, like for the region protection for the second Genesis or some of the region protection from the earlier uh, SF or Super Famicom and Super Nintendo things. You can literally just break the sides of your console and cram the cart in there and it works. So <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly it's like. 
it's really kind of dumb. As an aside to that, though, I've developed a converter, and I don't have any more available, but I might make more and sell them. Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) That will allow you to find and buy any one of these SFG05 modules, or SFG modules in general, for the CX-5M, which are very much cheaper than the Japanese ones. So they're just a little board, one side 50 pin, one side 60 pin, ribbon cable, that's all you need. Plug one into the MSX, plug one into the SFG, and there you go. Uh, furthermore, they are completely compatible with v- with VGMs. There's a player on the MSX and you can play back OPM VGMs on any SFG cartridge. And not just, you know, you can play pretty much any OPM track, as was just said, on your MSX. I mean, well... Kind of. <laughs> That's awesome. That's huge. It's like the MSX is so versatile in what it can handle. I'm really impressed by that. So here's an example we cooked up from the Sharp X1 Turbo and Sorcerian. Due to clock speed differences, it's not going to sound exactly the same, but since the X1 Turbo contains both a PSG and an OPM, you can get both to play back on your MSX. So let's take a listen. So that's what it sounds like if you play it back on the MSX. Here's what it actually sounds like if you play it on the Sharp X1 Turbo. Yeah, so it basically when you play something back on the uh, MSX, I think it's like a step and a half lower, like three three notes probably. Is that right? It sounds right. Yeah, that's that's that seems sane. It's four megahertz down to three and a half. So, so what's even cooler than that, though? And I think this is really where you know the practical application of this comes in. You can create OPM-based tracker files with Defilmask and use the SFG01 or 05 to play them back perfectly. If you go to Defilmask and select the Sega XY arcade board, you get access to the YM2151. Just be sure not to put anything into the PCM channels. You'll see there's eight PCM channels. It won't play back. But if you export this to a VGM, and if you put this on a flashcard or something and load it up on your MSX uh, computer, you should just be able to play it back. And it will only play the OPM back, but it will play it back. So you could write new original OPM work in a tracker and play it back on your MSX. That's great. And actually, you've uh, you've been making some music, right? 
Yeah, I'm actually working on a, a new game. Uh, it's a shmup, and we're going to be using the OPM as the main chip for it. So <clears throat> I took the liberty of recording something that I created in Deathly Mask here and recorded directly off the SFG01. So I guess one final aside here, and we kind of were thinking about this, and it only really dawned on us during the construction of this entire episode here, um, about Marble Madness. And Marble Madness is one of the first games I recall that actually use the OPM in an arcade setting, correct? Um, yeah, right. It's like the first known game to use OPM audio at all, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the first, I believe, you know, but it has a very iconic soundtrack, so that's also part of it, yeah. So we were looking down the timeline of releases, and it actually makes a lot of sense that this is something that would happen. So the MSX standard, you know, was released to the world in late 1983. Marble Madness came out in, I think, December of 1984. So it was a whole year. I think development for Marble Madness took 10 months. So that started in about February or March, which was enough time for Yamaha to go ahead and release the CX-5 and the, uh, the CX-5M in the United States. So there's a very strong possibility that an MSX, in combination with a DX7, was used to compose the soundtrack for Marble Madness. I mean, all of the sound hardware in Marble Madness runs at the same speed as the MSX. Uh, the I think it uses I think it uses a 6502 as the sound CPU, but it uses the OPM as its sound chip, and the OPM also runs at 3.58 megahertz. So it would have just been a one-to-one conversion of the code from MSX to OPM for for Marble Madness. That's a pretty great observation, and I think you're onto something with that. So with the PSG and the SFG down, we're now at another sound expansion called MSX Audio, which was released in 1985.
once again, it's a little tricky finding examples of MSX audio because once again, similar to the SFG, it wasn't really used in anything. Yeah, so MSX audio featured the Y8950 FM chip, which is basically similar to an OPL, not to be confused with OPLL. Uh, since we discussed the OPL in a previous episode, we'll just do a brief overview. It's nine channels of two operator FM synthesis, or it can kind of be divided up so that it's like six channels plus five rhythm channels. Um, but MSX Audio offers more than just the OPL compatible chip. Yeah, honestly, it's so funny. I knew so little about MSX Audio before we started planning that I actually left it off the list. I had no clue <laughs> that it was even a real a thing. Yeah, it's not super well known in all of this. MSX Audio was a bit different than the OPL in that the Y8950 not only did everything that the OPL did, but also added 4-bit ADPCM. It was completely backwards compatible with the OPL, uh, meaning anything written for the OPL can be played back using the module. Wow, so you could actually do some pretty impressive things with this. And they were also compatible, of course, something the MSX has always done well with. So off podcast, you were doing some research regarding the different versions of MSX Audio, because apparently there were... Yeah, there were three different units, actually. Uh, if you were in Japan, you only really saw the Panasonic FSCA1, and that unit was made specifically for the early Panasonic FSA1 and A1F computers. So the A1, uh, yes. the A1 Mark II, the A1F, the, the early ones, they had a cartridge slot off to the side, which was an odd decision, uh, which is very apparent when you're using this cartridge. Yeah, and it's funny because TrackMan and I know a lot about these particular models because um, <laughs> I'm staring at about six of them right now. Um. <laughs> it's the first one I owned. It's the first one Steve owned. I sold him mine, and now he sold that to someone else. So Yeah, I did, trying to get some more people to enjoy the MSX. <laughs> I'd say it's working. Um, yeah, I think so too. Um, it's interesting too, cause the, it's, you know, this really was designed with the A1 or the A1F's form in mind. Um, the PCB is actually smaller than the, the case that it's in. So like, it's like this big, like wing unwieldy thing. Um, you know, it, it, I'll, we'll post a picture of it here, but it's kind of big and unwieldy unless you had these particular systems, uh, to use it with. It's big and unwieldy, even if you had those systems. <laughs> it's kind of true. I mean, the board inside of it is... About the same size as the board for the other two modules, we'll talk, which we'll talk about later. So it really is just unnecessary. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a, honestly a waste <laughs> of plastic. But anyway, the FSCA1 included MSX Audio Basic, which allowed you to create MSX Audio Music in Basic. Uh, you can basically use the commands and whatnot to just define, create, and playback, etc. It's pretty simple. It's like MML. It really is like MML. Yeah. Yeah, It was the first MSX audio implementation and the only one that actually meets the full standard, and we'll discuss that in a little bit. Ah, uh, interesting. Next would be the Philips NMS-1205, and this one is actually really cool. It features its own special firmware called Music Box, which is a visual composition software. It was definitely designed with use in mind, as it has a lot of inputs and outputs, and it's even got a built-in microphone. It's very user-friendly, and it's even got, you know, it, you can even use a controller to input for it. That's pretty neat, but uh, I saw in the notes here that like it didn't meet the standard? Not really. The standard defines that you have to have a specific type of keyboard pinout, and it's actually the same as the one 
uh, for the SFG modules, even though they're not compatible. The pinout is the same, though. So it seems I didn't like... I know that. Wow. So yeah, you can use the Yamaha SFG keyboards to control uh, an actual standard MSX audio module, even though they're not you know, actually compatible or part of the same standard. This one has a different keyboard, which only allows you to hook up the Philips NMS 1160 keyboard. The Panasonic could, like I say, use uh, a bunch of different types. It could use all of the Yamaha ones. Yeah, that makes sense. I wasn't really sure why the standard didn't apply to the Philips. It sounds like it was pretty cool and handy tool to have. And any opportunity I can have to avoid using basic would be very welcome. <laughs> the last uh, the last example of the standard, well, quote unquote, would be the Toshiba HXMU900. MSX.org labels this as a crippled version of MSX Audio. It basically adheres to the standard, but only to like the bare minimum. Uh, basically all it is, is the sound chip. It doesn't have the BIOS. It doesn't have sound input. It's a key feature, uh, on, on the, on the Panasonic and Philips implementations, but this doesn't have it. It doesn't have sample RAM. It doesn't have really anything that they could use. And yeah, you can modify the Philips and the Toshiba to be full MSX audio compliant. But even if you do that to the Toshiba, you still won't get the microphone and you still won't get you know custom sample ram for your own samples huh that sounds pretty cool uh, i'd love to hear some audio examples of this yeah it's kind of complicated kind of as uh, trackman would say the toshiba and philips implementation both lack the ms audio bios which is what he mentioned which basically means that if you wrote game music for msx audio the system wouldn't even detect it and wouldn't play the audio <laughs> Wow. Even then, there are only really a couple of soundtracks that support it, and most of them were written by Compile with only a couple of examples from Namco. I think it's super hard to find them. Yeah, I, I, like it's it's ridiculously hard to find one of these units. Uh, listed on MSX.org, here's the kinds of the games that were compliant. It was Gorvelius 2, Gorby's Pipeline, Broodmaster 2, all seem to be MSX audio compliant. And of course, anything that uses OPL can be used back to play and be played back on MSX audio. So if you have an OPL track, you can play it on MSX audio. I managed to find a cool demo by Tiny Yaro of, uh, of Terra Cresta, uh, which was done by Nichamputsu. Uh, and so here's an example of what MSX audio could sound like. That track sounds really awesome, uh, and it's it's just kind of a shame that you know we're like scrounging for a demo that uses the audio, and that there weren't 
you know, there's not like a list of like 10 video games that used it for their soundtrack. That's kind of a bummer. I mean, another thing that probably keys into this is that like we were kind of alluding to, but we didn't actually say only the Panasonic model that was here was actually available to Japanese audiences. The rest of these and especially the Philips was specifically for European audiences. So it's, you know, it was something that was kind of like built in. It was kind of like there was pushed only towards one particular manufacturer uh, to fit its form model, its, uh, you know, form of the uh, FSA-1 by Panasonic. So it's kind of like it was kind of doomed from the start because of that. It was really only supported by like one of the manufacturers at that time that were making MSX-2. And there was, you know, at least 20. So that's kind of part of the problem uh, also why, why this really didn't take off. I mean, it sounds fantastic. And the OPL is a very powerful chip, especially compared to other FM chips like of the time. Um, so it's kind of really sad that it wasn't really used or utilized correctly. Right. My thoughts. Exactly. Uh, so moving along here to 1986, we arrive at the next sound expansion, the SCC. And unlike previous sound expansions, this one was actually used uh, in a bunch of stuff, which is great. This expansion chip for the MSX is Konami's Sound Custom Chip, or Sound Creative Chip, uh, better known as the SCC. It's a pretty great chip, and Trackman, this is what got you into the MSX in the first place, huh? Oh, 100%. You can you can actually hear the excitement in my voice about how I'm going to talk about this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, basically, one night, you can... <laughs> I urge you not to, but you can go through my Twitter feed. And you can search for, I think I like tweeted in all caps, proud owner with the MSX logo. One night, I basically just bought an MSX. I was like, I'm, if, I do, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I bought an MSX and then I'm like, all right, sweet. I have an MSX. How do I use it? So I had to buy a flash cartridge. And the dominant flash cartridge for the MSX is the Mega Flash ROM SCC Plus SD512K. And it's... Uh, a slot expander in a cartridge. You get an SCC, you get MSX DOS 2, you get ROM loading, you get disk emulation. But the SCC is actually the most sort of important part. That's the whole reason why people get this. So now I have an MSX, now I have an SCC cartridge, now I get to play with it. <laughs> it's honestly one of the most fun sound chips I've ever had a chance to play with. I mean, I love the 2A03, I love the Game Boy, I love the OPM, but the SCC is really where my heart is. It's like Konami looked at Namco's arcade chip, the WSG, and was like, we need this. For, we need this for the MSX. We, we need it to sound this good. And they did it. Like, they, they took an arcade chip and they crammed it into the MSX and it actually works. That's awesome. Uh, what kind of specs does the SCC have? The SEC was an on-cartridge expansion chip, just like all the ones in the Famicom. It adds five channels of 256, that's an 8-bit bit depth waveform, uh, with a, 30, a length of 32 samples. And it works exactly the same as any Famicom expansion chip. It's got, you know, memory controlling, so it tells the MSX what to see, and the MSX tells it what to play, and it just pumps it through the cartridge slot. It's such a great chip, and there's really like so much that we could say about it. 
so that during the creation of this episode, we decided it would need its own episode, actually. So, yeah, I mean, each of each Famicom expansion has their own episode. And that's what we've kind of done in the past. So we really feel like we have to separate this out for the future or for like, you know, to have a specific episode, you know, where we sit down and we dedicate a lot of time to the SEC. And of course, we'll have Trackman back for that. Oh, totally. I am honestly a little disappointed since it's my favorite <laughs> sound chip ever. But knowing that we're going to be putting an entire episode together just centered on this sound chip makes me feel a whole lot better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it We figured it really deserves its own episode. Um, so and uh, it won't be next month's episode, but it won't be long from now. So I think if, we haven't picked an exact date yet, but just a few months down the road, we think. Um, so uh, the future SEC episode will play at least one song from every SEC soundtrack in chronological order, um, but we do have several examples picked out here anyways. So, And it was hard to pick because, you know, obviously we are not going to cover the chip completely here, so we're limited in what we can pick from the SEC. Uh, and the SEC had a bunch of great, great, great content. But nonetheless, we managed to figure out that we should probably just start with the first SEC game, which is F1 or A1 Spirit, depending. I really enjoy the uh, victory tune, which is Winning Run. It's probably one of my favorite SCC jingles. It's just a little tiny jingle, so let's take a listen to it. So next on the list here is Nemesis 3, Gopher no Yabou 2. This is a really good one, too. Let's take a listen. We have a selection here from Baseball 2, Pennant Race. Uh, This is just the title screen theme. so much how they use the SEC channels to do those fat drums. It's the so good. The whistle is my favorite part. The whistle is really nice. 
So next on our list is a track from Quarth. This is a soundtrack that I was really only familiar with the Famicom soundtrack before. But nonetheless, here is BGMBA from Quarth. track is from Space Manbo, which is probably my favorite game on MSX. And what's even cooler is this game's lead composer was Michiro Yamane, which is actually really cool because she, you know, she does basically all of the coolest Castlevania work, uh, Symphony of the Night and on, basically. So no wonder I like it. <laughs> actually, yeah, you can almost hear her Castlevania style in some tracks like uh, Aquarium. classic example of her style though you know what i mean like especially the worst part is is that the stage that it plays on is the most annoying ah that's a bummer Uh, like in my opinion because in space manbo a lot of the levels scroll really fast this one is oh yeah this one is one of those like salamander levels where it scrolls really slow and the enemies just keep shooting at you and the enemies aren't moving (laughs) so you have to like (laughs) duck and weave through all of the projectiles while the stage isn't moving. Ah, oh, that sounds brutal. It's like you you go into it thinking, all right, this stage is slow. This is gonna th- this gives me a lot more time to react. And then it fills up with bullets and you have no idea what you're doing. And then like <laughs> in the middle of the stage you get these little robots that actually box you in and you have to shoot out the walls of the boxes to get out. 
and there's no space on the screen for you to move. Wow, that's awful. <laughs> I guess last but not least on this list, we'd be we someone would probably attack us if we didn't play something from Metal Gear Two. Yeah, this game is it's yeah honestly something essential. It's it's you have to play it if you're playing an SEC track or if you're playing an MSX track. Absolutely, it's a it's a fantastic game as well. It just I we we were trying debating like what song should represent it, but we all settled on the intro. It's a really really great tune. It sounds like the the whole audio visual experience of the introduction is like an eighties yeah. movie introduction. It's in so a, cool. Like that was in the a way whole point that, of it. That's yeah. that is a hundred percent like the vibe Kojima was going for with it. Absolutely. I mean, you can you can see where like the seeds uh that were planted for the series to turn into what it did and for Hideo Kojima to become as renowned as he is because you know it might be something you take for granted today but if you look at other games from the time you know their games might have like an 80s aesthetic but they don't feel yeah, like an they actual don't have, they movie. don't have the movie vibe to them right yeah. right this this is like, like you're watching an introduction to a John Carpenter movie exactly
but like the best part of that song is is like the the second part when you've got the SEC doing the dun 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 da da dun. I love that oh, yeah. part so much. Yeah, that, that one instrument is so great. It really evokes. You know, that's the guitar doing like a call and response to the synth hits b- before it. It's really yeah. good. It's 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 just like so well constructed. I when we when we do the SCC uh, like episode, we should definitely spend a lot of time talking about that soundtrack. I think that would oh, be really yeah. Great we're to gonna play, play a bunch of tracks from Metal Gear Two when we do that SCC. Oh episode. yeah, totally. No, no a doubt. A bunch about of that. tracks from Metal Gear Two. A bunch of tracks from Snatcher. Oh yes. man, Snatcher's gonna take up a lot of time. Oh, it's gonna yeah. be a lot. Uh, I can't wait. I really can't wait. There was that recent uh, Snatcher vinyl release, but it didn't use the SCC I, version it, of the soundtrack. It was the PC eighty eight. Oh no! I don't like the PC version. Yeah, and at all, I really appreciate version. what those guys are doing with their vinyl releases because they've released a bunch of other awesome stuff. So I, you know, I don't want to sound too negative, but it's I just mean, like, I, I mean, I get it because besides, obviously, besides the Sega CD version, uh, the PC eighty eight version of Snatcher is like the version of Snatcher. Like, it it it'd be heresy if you said that the PC eighty eight version wasn't like the version. But in terms of the soundtrack, it's a hundred percent the SEC version. They should just take the gameplay from the PC-98 version and give you the SCC soundtrack and everyone would be happy. That's what I've been saying about a bunch of games. They've got to do these things. you got to take the PC version of Maniac Mansion and put the NES soundtrack to it. <laughs> that would be awesome. awesome. That was actually, that's actually something somebody did with, uh, with Uno. No, yeah, they redid Uno and they used the PC-98 soundtrack. It was an official, like, an official re-release for Windows and then somebody took the re-release and then stuck the PC-98 soundtrack into it. That's great. I downloaded it and then I I was like starting to play it and like my wife and other people were around and I'm like, oh, this is not the kind of game you can play when other people are around. Yeah, I'm tempted to play it just for the soundtrack, but that's yeah, absolutely. It's definitely like an erotic thing. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's not it's not great (laughs) for that reason. It's great, but it's not great. Um, anyway, so that wraps up the SCC for now, obviously. Yes, but we will get back to it. Uh, and so what's next? That would be the YM2413, or OPLL, as part of the MSX Music Standard in 1987. So you see, like, every year, almost, a new expansion is getting released for the MSX. Ah, yeah. So we've covered the OPLL in a couple of our episodes. Patrick, care to remind the audience about it? Sure. The uh, Yamaha OPLL is the cost-effective version of the Yamaha OPL2. It features two operator FM synthesis, and it comes with 15 preset instruments, like patches you can't change, but uh, an additional one voice that you can customize. And it also has two different modes, like we kind of mentioned this earlier, where you can have like nine channels of two operator FM synthesis, or you can divide it weirdly so that it's six channels plus uh, five rhythm channels. So it's it's pretty handy. And uh, this was also used in the Sega Mark III and the VRC7, uh, you know, because the VRC7 is a variant of the YM2413. So if you want to learn more about this chip's capabilities, check out episodes 5 and 19 of the podcast because we, uh, well, we correct some of Steve's mistakes in a past episode. Yeah, I thought the VRC7 and the YM2413 had the same preset instruments before we did our Lagrange Point episode, and I'm wrong, and I'm very sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we did learn they were different. So, now we can explain a little bit. Yes, MSX Audio was before MSX Music. The more advanced one came first. Uh, But MSX Audio was established to be the standard 
And for whatever reason, they never really adopted it. I guess because just the cost and nobody besides Panasonic did it. So when ASCII decided on the next standard for the MSX, they chose the weaker and incompatible OPLL instead of the OPL. And they basically completely abandoned any plans for MSX audio. Ultimately, it was cheaper, and that shows where the standard was in 1987. Yeah, it's kind of sad. I mean, you know, the OPL is, um, you know, much more robust in terms of what it can do. But, you know, again, it's 1987. ASCII has already lost all of Microsoft's money at this point. So when, as they're establishing things, I think they're starting to go more and more cut rate because they have less and less investments. Because of that goddamn dinosaur. Yeah, you're basically settling for, like, Lagrange Point audio instead of, like, the full-blown thicker arcade audio yep and so there were a couple of ways you could get opl an opll attached to your msx one you could go out and buy a panasonic fm pana amusement cartridge commonly referred to as the fm pack or you could buy one of the various msx 2 plus or turbo r models that include msx music standard it'll say the stamp will be right on the console it will it's it's super cool because you could just instantly tell yep One thing that is interesting is that there are differences in how some MSXs mix the audio input for MSX music. As such, the FM pack actually has a built-in volume switch to control its output. Uh, it, it, It basically depends on what kind of MSX it's attached to, and then you can flip the switch between three different positions. Huh. So we're calling this a standard, but of course, with the different versions, that means there's going to be some variation, right? Yeah, but it's mostly related to volume and balance. To show this off, we wanted to pick a track that really shows off the range of the ability of OPLL, uh, so we picked the famous prelude from Final Fantasy. So you'll be hearing four different sources seamlessly back-to-back. First, it'll be the recording from my Sony HBF1 XDJ, uh, which is an MSX2+, with built-in MSX music, followed by Steve's FM pack with his low-volume setting, then again with the FM pack at high-volume, And then lastly, off of Steve's Panasonic FSA1WSX MSX2, which also has built-in MSX music. Yeah, we've sort of strung all these samples together uh, seamlessly. So when you hear like changes in the volume or changes in the sound set, that's when you're switching from one piece of hardware to the next. It's pretty noticeable too. You'll hear it. So let's move on to some examples of OPLL soundtracks for the MSX. I must admit, there is a great amount of OPL content for the MSX. I mean, there's a lot of great tracks. And I've been playing through a bunch of the older RPGs and stuff on my WSX. Uh, Now that I have an MSX 2 Plus, I can play pretty much anything except like, you know, things that require a Turbo R. Um, And they really, really, really use the OPLL to great success. Um, A great example and something you would actually listen to from start to finish like if you then you really should uh, is the soundtrack to Dragon Slayer: Legend of Heroes. Uh, it's also a Falcom soundtrack, so of course it's good. Uh, here's the town theme, which I like a lot.
I really like that. That's a good sound. Yeah, it's very pleasant, very pretty sounding. It, it's it's great. I mean, you know, it puts to sh- like I really do like the OPLL on the Second Mark Three slash ma- Master System, but man, there's just some really like deep like understanding of how the chip works uh, for some of these soundtracks is unbelievable. They're doing a they're doing a better job with it on the MSX, to be frank. I think so. Um, so this, the game that you chose, like the Legend of Heroes, it's a title that I've seen a bunch. Is it, is it on a bunch of consoles or? Yeah, <laughs> this. I mean, it's been ported from everything to FM Towns to Microsoft Windows to Satellaview of all things. Oh wow! And to Turbo really? CD. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been everywhere, and it's a great game. That's why you know it lends itself to that. And so, what's really fantastic about uh, Dragon Slayer is uh, Legend of Heroes is that you can hear this soundtrack on a ton of different chips done a ton of different ways um so that's something if you want to do some cool research about the differences like you definitely check out uh the soundtrack on uh you know youtube or wherever you can find it our next example is from starship rendezvous yes the game is what you think it is but (laughs) it's interesting though because it uses uh nine channel opll instead of the six plus five configuration and it uses the AY exclusively for percussion. Yeah, it was also composed by the dream team of Sakiboto and Iwata, who've done many, many games together. It's pretty good, so here's Maze Trap from Starship Rendezvous.
it's interesting how when you just use the nine OPL that it's it's kind of brutal. Yeah, um, it's kind of tinny and loud, and not many games use all the nine channel OPLL when it's kind of the main chip here. So I don't know if it's in best taste, but I really applaud the idea of having that much texture there, and then using the AY, which is a you know the AY is fine for percussion; it makes a fine percussion sound. I think it's just really an interesting risk. It's one of the only track soundtracks that I know that's OPLL for the MSX that uses the nine channels. There could be others, but that's one of the, the good examples I could find. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so the next example on our list is from Zach, the art of visual stage by micro cabin. Uh, Steve, you actually, you just did a playthrough of this game, right? Yeah. I actually just played through this on my console on the WSX. Um, it's a great game. Um, it's kind of like yeast in a lot of ways. Uh, and it has a fantastic soundtrack. I mean, it is a yeast clone like let's not let's not mince my words here it really is um <clears throat> so the, the soundtrack to it is really really fantastic um and my favorite track would be from the land of flames uh the sky this is like the sky level okay so you play through this whole game and it's like yeast where you like bump into enemies basically it's the same basic idea the only difference between yeast and this game is you can draw your sword by pressing a button or or have your shield out when you bump into people so but it adds a small convention for some reason I have no clue why they did this. The very last stage of the game just turns into a shmup. Weird. So this entire game, you're not playing a shmup, and now it's a it's a shmup, and it's this awesome vertical shooting element. So what's really bad, though, and we've talked about this, is now that it becomes a shmup, Micro Cabin isn't necessarily the best at optimizing for a shmup, and, uh, well, it lags like hell. It, like, barely works. <laughs> And since I'm playing on the real console, I can't like fix this or go through this or change you can't anything. Speed in there. up the so, emulator. Actually, you can. Yeah. Your MSX model is one of the one that has like a, a turbo CPU, so you can speed it up to five oh. megahertz. Yeah, I was playing with the turbo CPU on it. Were you really? <laughs> yeah. So here's what ends up happening. It, there's so many sprites on the screen that it can't handle it. Oh. Um and, I see. and the sprites are firing projectiles. So I discovered that if I actually fired a bunch of bullets and didn't use the turbo fire, but fired manually by hand, there would be so many sprites on the screen that the enemies wouldn't spawn. There you go. So I could get through the stages by literally glitching it out. So if I kept firing, the enemy wouldn't spawn. The game would slow down enough that any enemies that did spawn, I could kill them. But you had to really legitimately like type, like smash the button like a madman. Like as if you're playing like the Simpsons arcade game and you're blowing up the balloon, like the entire time to get this to work, basically. Um, That's insane. But anyway, long story short, it's a fantastic game. And this is the song that plays during the Land of the Flames, this guy.
next track is from F1 Spirit 3D Special. Trackman and I like to talk about this one a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's the music is actually pretty fantastic. It's basically the MSX version of Outrun. I mean, even the tracks are kind of like Outrun. Like, I mean, it's it's more like they just ripped off Outrun. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, here's Turn on the Run from F1 Spirit 3D Special. example comes from Firehawk, Thexter, the Second Contact. It's from Mission 7 and probably has one of the best examples of OPLL, multi-channel echo, I've ever heard. So this brings us to the last implementation of the MSX standard, the Turbo R. Yeah, sadly, the last version of the MSX. The Turbo R featured built-in PCM and MSX MIDI, uh, the latter of which allowed MSX computers to connect to MIDI devices. 
The MSX MIDI was also kind of a standard that was introduced in the Yamaha CX-5 series computers as really just ports for MIDI input and output. So, but of these two things that we just mentioned, the PCM is a lot more interesting. <laughs> yeah, so in addition to all of the other features of the system, this added one channel of 8-bit PCM playback. So like MSX Audio did originally before it was downgraded to MSX Music. Yeah, pretty much. Not <laughs> not many games used it, but only really because this is all at the very, very end of the MSX standard's life. Yeah, Microcabin was one of the longest holdouts with the standard. Continued to support the standard, you know, right until the very end. So naturally, they're one of the few companies that has a game that actually supports the PCM. Yeah, uh, so probably the best example of PCM and MIDI use for the MSX is Illusion City. This game was pretty advanced for an MSX game in general, and it really took advantage of a lot of the features that the Turbo R offered. Yeah, and the music is ridiculously good. And of course, you know, being microcabins, actually the same composers as Zach. Um, so has a little synergy with that, that OPLL soundtrack we were just listening to. Uh, but none of us own the uh, Turbo R, sadly, right? Uh, one of these days I'll get it if I have $900 lying around. <laughs> I, I, I might have those lying around in January. So I'm, I'll, Ooh, awesome. we'll see. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I, one of us has to own one. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so, you know, we're going to have to pull the, just an example here from YouTube. Uh, here's Indoor Combat from Illusion City. Is that that's OPLL and PCM, right? It is, yeah. Holy shit! It's that's what's so cool about wow. it. Wow! Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So it really gets that like killer groove, you know, like the idea that you can use the PCM and the OPLL together is is just oh, it's it's so great. It's like the 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 thing that OPLL is missing is just like that sample playback, and it's kind of like it's like it completes the chip. Yeah, it's just like the OPM with the uh, Oki uh, on the uh, X68K. Having Even if it's only 4-bit, just having the ability to play a sample along with it really helps it along. Yeah, it really rounds out the sound. Yeah, you can really hear the PCM, uh, like in the drums in uh, Final Battle.
definitely adds something. It's just weird because it's still just the OPLL, the, the boring YM2413 with just one, you know, uh, PCM channel added to it. And so therefore it's gonna lack the potential of MSX audio, which had, you know, which was never really realized. MSX audio still had OPL compatibility. And so there would have been more sounds that at this point we could have taken advantage of. It's kind of sad that at the very end of the MSX life, we see all of these things that could have been, um, you know, it, the OPLL sounds fantastic in this in this situation, but just imagine if it was OPL and the, the you know, the MSX audio standard and PCM on top of it, that'd be fantastic. Imagine like them not having to stick with the one custom patch and them yeah. being able to use two PCM channels instead of one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just inter- interesting that, you know, going over the list of expansions here that our first two examples really were things that kind of didn't really happen. So there's a, there's a, f- a couple failed attempts before they settled in on things that did work and did get uh, adopted. So that is, I think, pretty interesting. The strange thing is with the exception of the PCM, it's the simplest chips. It's you've got a wavetable chip, you've got a PSG, you've got a really limited FM chip, and then that's it. I mean, and you know, and you got to think about this too. This is this is OPLL and PCM in 1991, right? I think Illusion City came out in 1991. Yeah. So the the Super Nintendo's out. Like, you know, the what I Genesis mean? <laughs> is out. The Genesis has been out for like three years already. Yeah, it's it's so, not it's not dropping Jaws at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, and you have to think about all the other uh, advantages. Like, that's even if it was MSX Audio, the, the OPL is old at this point. You know, like the OPL itself is an old chip. So, you know, it, it's just kind of making the best, making do with what they had and making the best of it, I guess. And I, I, I really appreciate that Microcabin was like, yeah, you know what? We, we're still developing for this. We're going to make some really deep games and we're going to work really hard on this and take advantage of all the things in there. Oh, and they, um, so, they were successful for sure, too, because, I mean, Illusion City sounds better than your like average Super Nintendo soundtrack to me, I think. Oh, I would say so. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, to close out the section, we do have an example of the MIDI sound capabilities we mentioned earlier. So here's another uh, excerpt, this time from the intro to Illusion City, uh, using a Roland CM32L. If you have a Roland 32 or any of the Roland products, you can just hook it up to the GTs? Yeah. No, totally. 100%. Oh, I didn't even realize that. that no, I, you can well, hook I, them straight I don't know why up. I feel so stupid about that. Okay. I'm not sure which one sounds better, the MT32 or the CM32. I think the CM32 sounds better. Someone in the comments, in the YouTube comments, was claiming that like they, they this version, the one that I just played, is the one that they thought was inferior, uh, but I thought it sounded good, so who knows? I know there, there are... That one uses the because you know I I want to be like the guy like check check out I'm a trackman he's got all the cool MSX stuff so when I get my Turbo R I wanted to get like a MIDI thing to accompany it just because mm-hmm. and I forgot which one I was gonna get because I I want it to be the one where Illusion City sounds how I think it's supposed to sound. And I don't want to buy, like, an MT32 and figure out, oh, it sucks on this one. 
I don't think those modules aren't like super expensive. No, right? are they? they're not super expensive, but they are definitely like I'm gonna have to spend another sixty or seventy bucks for it. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, that still sucks on top of nine hundred. But if you're spending nine hundred anyway, you know. I mean, you're right. <laughs> I might as well. So I guess we should mention modern examples as well. Yeah, so I have a kind of a modern OPLL example I'd like to share. I don't know what year it was made in because, unfortunately, sometimes people don't like to put timestamps on their work. But it's by a guy called TD, and that's another thing. They don't really like to put easily accessible names. Uh, made in MML with MGSDRV. It's called Millennium, and it really is one of the... It's a really calm, sort of cool track for the OPLL.
And also, we need to talk about Moon Sound. Yes. Moon Sound first appeared in 1995, long after the MSX Turbo R. And it's a really weird chip because it is technically officially part of the MSX standard. There's a, there's a chart out there that shows like the MSX standard for CPU ports of how the CPU, the Z80 accesses a bunch of different chips. And it's on that list. It's got a couple of ports and then it's got an alternative location where if you plug two in, the CPU can access two of them at once. And it's actually part of the standard, but it was released so long after the Turbo R that there was nowhere really to sell it. So it was produced on a, a, a really strange sort of term, which I've never heard before, a semi-hobby basis. And then it was released... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I release tracks on a semi hobby Yeah, pieces. exactly. It's like, how do you do that? And it was uh, released, like it was first sold at an MSX convention. And there are pictures that you can find of like the guy soldering like the first, like he's there at the convention and he's putting them together on the table. And he's got like the Yamaha data sheets sitting next to him. And it's, it's like, it's insane. So it's a kind of like something halfway between a legit commercial product and something that's homebrew. Yeah. Weird. And it's it's insanely powerful. Like, there's no reason why an 8-bit computer should have something like this. Uh, it contains a full Yamaha YMF278 and OPL4, which is an insanely... It's, it's just stupidly and immensely powerful. It's basically like bolting a PlayStation 1 to your MSX. Because it can give you up to 24 full 44.1 kilohertz 8-bit PCM channels. Wow. <laughs> that's insane. That is completely And that's insane. not it. Because on top of that, you've also got a full OPL3 in half, uh, on the other half. So you've got 24 channels of PCM and up to 18 channels of 2-operator FM. And I wow. think you guys talked about the OPL3 in another episode, didn't you? Yeah, it's actually the sound chip in Sound Blaster Pro 2.0 and Sound Blaster 16, the you know two very iconic chips. So just imagine being able to get 24 channels of PCM and a Sound Blaster Pro 2.0 on this on the same card for for like an old 8-bit computer. That's really really <laughs> weird. And like the funniest thing is, you can use multiple sound chips on the MSX at the same time. So you can have all 24 PCM channels and all 18 FM channels and three channels of PSG if you felt like it. Could you do OPLL on top of that as well? You, if you totally to? could. And the OPM, yes. OPM, if you had three slots, yes. that's great. You totally. <laughs> all right. So one thing, one thing you could do, uh, like like a a Yamaha MSX2 with a module slot. You plug the, the OPM into the module slot, you plug an OPLL into the back, and then you plug uh, an MFR SCC on top. And then you've got OPL, uh, you've got OPL3, PCM, OPLL, SCC, and PSG, and you can use them all at the same time. <laughs> That's insane. It is. It's, it's it, like I said, it's so stupid. Like, why would, why would anybody need this? But it's it's honestly like super helpful with the playback of different files. Uh, it's yeah. extremely flexible and compatible. Uh, I've made uh, tracks that use actually uh, the OPM and PCM at the same time. So I've got like drums playing on the OPL4 and I've got an OPM track 
playing alongside of it, and it's seamless and it's perfect. You can play back mod files. You can play back files that are recorded from DOS games, and it's it's a really cool thing to have. You have one of these, right? I, I really want one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sadly, like a lot of things for the MSX, they don't come out too often. So I think the last time that I told you about it, which is when I got mine, that's that was probably your last opportunity for a good while. Man. Either way, uh, you're not out completely because you can still listen to examples of you know people using it. This is actually a cover of Alone Battle uh, from East that somebody did. And it uses uh, four four operator channels. So that's a thing with the OPL3. You can link two uh, two-op channels together to make one four-op channel. So it uses four four-op channels, ten two-op channels, and six PCM channels. And it sounds really <laughs> good. It's one of my favorite uses of this. Like I, I'm going to be honest. A lot of the uses of the OPL4 that are there on the MSX aren't really impressive to me. It's like... Someone saw how many channels they had and were like, I have to use all of these somehow, no matter what. <laughs> and they just went like layering sounds unnecessarily and using like stupid samples and things that didn't make any sense. But this is actually put together really well. Yeah, I was really impressed when you sent this example over. Because um, like you said, the, the, you run the risk of using so many sound channels that things just become like noisy and hectic. But uh, whoever arranged this knew exactly what they were doing, because this is very pleasant, very pretty sounding. Um, let's give it a listen. That's the end. This was super fun, and I really want to thank Trackman for joining us. We covered a lot of ground today. Yeah, I had a lot of fun going over the MSX like this, because I only really knew bits and pieces about the different sound expansions, so to sort of prepare and go over examples from everything just clears up a lot for me, uh, and I, it was really fantastic. Uh, so thank you, Trackman, for joining us. 
I thank you honestly, sincerely, very much for having me. I, it's it's honestly, it's one of those things I never thought I'd be able to do is to like get on and talk about something I really like, something I really enjoy. So you guys giving me this opportunity to talk about one of my favorite, you know, standards of all time. It's, you know, it's, it's, I enjoy it. Thank you. That's really all I can say. Hey, we're not done yet. We still got to do the SEC episode too. <laughs> That's true. I am coming back. So I'm going to look forward to that. All right. Yeah, and th- thanks again. This episode would not have been the same without you by by a yeah. long shot. So, um, yeah. yeah, we'll talk to you again in the not-too-distant future uh, about the SEC. All right. Looking forward to it. So, uh, what's up? Uh, so a bunch of things. We finally launched a website, retrogameaudio.com. Yay. Uh, it's a pretty simple site, but we're happy to have it up. It pretty much just links to everything we have going on. Um, you know, so it links to, you can find the podcast on SoundCloud, on VG Arc, uh, but also linking to the YouTube channel where I've been uploading stuff, uh, side content and our Twitter as well. So, um, help spread the word if you like what we do. Uh, we highly appreciate it. Um, a couple things going on too. Patreon is in a bit of controversy at the moment for having updated uh, how they do some stuff. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I still have to catch up on some of the particulars, but I know that really low donor levels are very inconvenienced by the way they process them. Like basically, it costs more to do a one dollar donation now. Um, mm. So we actually had a donator, uh, one dollar donor, recently just uh, up his pledge to ten dollars, and when that processes, then he's going to cancel and come back ten months later, basically. Um, and we highly appreciate him doing that. Uh, I think that was a very kind and generous solution to the current issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but we, we will look into updating, you know, we have posts that are currently locked for like $1 donors. Um, and we will look to like probably just changing those to be free and restructuring it. Cause we don't want anyone locked out of $1 content, you know, being inconvenienced by yeah. the, uh, the I, update. I mean, we use our Patreon, like we we use it for with a very specific purpose it's kind of like to push out certain things so we we have to really think about it and how that affects people who want to engage with us um yeah we patrick and i will probably talk and we'll probably talk more about it uh on the patreon and on twitter once we have like a good solution right and place. it's it's not all official in text on the patreon yet but we did update it so that uh 5 dollar backers now have access to the discord um, yeah, if you yeah, it used to be a twenty five dollar perk, um, but if you donate five, like we're uh, we started like updating the Discord to kind of cultivate more community, uh, and it's already been like super fun this whole week with uh, new people kind of joining. So five dollars, you can join our Discord and just hang out. There's a lot of really really <laughs> like I was we were just talking about. It. I'm kind of starstruck by some of the people who are in our freaking Discord. So oh, it's absolutely cool. to anyone who did uh, donate twenty five dollars to us in the past, uh, even just. At least once, uh, we have a special couple gifts in mind, so we will we will get those compiled and prepared, and then we'll be hitting you up for uh, some contact information. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely really appreciate the the the, the you know the people who are at the twenty five dollar uh, you know donations, and really that really really helped launch this. I mean, the microphone I have and a lot of the different things that we've been using to make these episodes were all from those original twenty five dollar backers. Um, yes. So man, it's it's you know. No one. Uh, we do this if no one paid us to do this, and yes. the fact that people would support us is great. I, you know, I really hate when like people on like YouTube channels and stuff like that go on and on and on about their backers and stuff. But like, 
it really does mean something. Like, it, you know, and I think that I have a different opinion on that because I genuinely feel really great that like people you guys support us so really really like heartfelt thanks you know and, and that's what you know we'll, we'll keep doing this no matter if you give us nothing you know we'll keep doing this but to, to have some help on the side it's just it's unbelievable it's fantastic absolutely uh so i just want to look at uh, our most recent episode was the halloween mix so not being a conversational based episode uh you know there's not too many comments on it um i did want to read uh carl's response to uh the ocarina of time track so he says, uh, as a kid, I always had to rent Ocarina of Time before I owned it, so I remembered how spooky the song was and was so confused when I finally got a copy of the game for myself, and it was the much less spooky version. I was convinced I was remembering it was wrong, or was crazy, or the game I played with, uh, you know, its version was cursed. Uh, it wasn't until years later that I found out about this. I love when stuff like this happens. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, when they removed this from the game, they also removed Ganondorf coughing up blood after you beat him, and instead Nintendo that up by making the red pixels green. Interesting. I actually am... Uh, I haven't really played Ocarina of Time very much. It's kind of funny. It's like, as a gamer, I know that's like one of the classics or whatever. Um, but I missed out on a lot of N64 stuff, so uh, I would not know about that. Yeah, I, don't, I think my... I don't remember what my version does when you beat it. <clears throat> or if it has the spooky track in it or not. I know that, like, I think I, I was pretty on top of things when the, when that stuff was coming out. So I'm pretty sure I, if, if it's only in the first run that I have the first run. So I probably have all that stuff in it. Oh, I did want to point out another comment by Ostra. Um, or let me say Ostra. I, say um, I did want to point out another comment by Ostra. They complimented us on our uh, introduction track for the episode, which was an a uh, alien breed for the Amiga. So I said thanks. You know, Alien Breed is one of those Amiga games I had always heard of but never played. I was happy to find that it had great music. Uh, I think they sort of joked like, oh, not a fan of Alistair Brimble, I, I assume. You know, because it is an Alistair Brimble track that I was unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. um, but I will I will say I grew up as a fan of uh, Super Frog and its ridiculous music. Uh, so I've always known uh, Alistair Brimble as the Super Frog guy, which is really probably not the best thing to know him by. Um... <laughs> It's, it's like saying, I know Tim Fallon only for his uh, PS2 Lemming soundtrack or whatever. Right, or <laughs> incredible crash test dummies or something. All right, so I guess the, it's time to move on to name that game. Uh, okay, so we had a track from our last episode, which would actually be the Capcom episode, so two episodes ago. Yes. Did anyone guess it successfully? Yes. First, let's give it a quick listen here, refresh the listeners. And uh, there was essentially a tie here. Well, one person oh, nice. yeah, did mention, uh, when I got both of the messages, neither of them displayed the exact minute. They both said something like, it, the way it displayed for me was like four hours ago on both messages. So as far as I was, <laughs> I'm concerned, it was a tie. I did find out one person was technically ten minutes earlier than the other person. Um, but That's that, still it, pretty close. I mean, it's really cool that there was such a small window for two people submitting their answers. Um so one was uh, Zuri HB. Uh, they guessed it correctly is Monty on the Run. And then just like moments later, uh, Vidi OTT or Vidi Ott from SoundCloud also correctly guessed that it was Monty on the Run. 
Nice. So yeah, good job, you guys. And we got we had a few more. Uh, I think Keno and some other guys um, later on also were able to figure it out. Um, but those those two people were the first. So we have another track here. You know, another name that game track uh, for this episode. Yep, let's give it a listen. Let's see if you can name that game. So, Steve, uh, that about wraps up the episode. Do you have a closing theme picked out for us? Yeah. So it, we actually, you know, my, one of my favorite tracks from Space Mambo, we played another track from it earlier, is actually uh, Memoir, which is kind of like at the end. Of, it's the end of the game. It's like the epilogue theme. Um, <clears throat> there was a couple of different composers that worked on this game. And Michiro Yamane is the one I mentioned earlier. I, you know, I was trying to look this up and confirm it. I'm pretty sure that based on looking at the listings of who wrote what track, that this was actually written by her. Um, I can't confirm that, though. But it sounds like her to me, and that's why I really, really enjoyed this track. So uh, here it is. Uh, This is Memoir from Space Mambo, and thank you for listening to Retro Game Audio.